This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a multi day protest at the New Orleans jail resulted in several prisoners saying they suffered serious injuries at the hands of corrections officers and were denied medical treatment in the aftermath. A methanol company is on the hook for its stalled $2.2 billion project after the St. James Parish Council rejected a zoning ordinance that would have marked a majority black residential community for industrial development. And the New Orleans City Council is flexing its regulatory muscles with some recent moves on short-term rentals and a proposal to limit how the sewerage and water board can bill certain customers. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hi, Nick. Morning, Kayla. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is back. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Nick, first up with you in criminal justice, the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office has said there were only minor injuries related to a raid on a housing pod several weeks ago in response to a protest. But several detainees in in the jail have said they were taken to the hospital with broken bones, collapsed lungs, and wounds from being kicked in the face by jail staff and Department of Corrections officials. What prompted the protest in the first place? Yeah, so the detainees in the jail had kind of a list of of um, grievances that they gave both to the sheriff's office and then the sheriff's office released it to, to the media, um, actually while the protest was still going on. And, you know, it was a lot of pretty basic things. They wanted to be taken to court on time. Um, they wanted their uh, their sick calls, their their medical complaints to be kind of handled in a in a timely fashion. Uh, they said they wanted to be allowed access to more books. Um, and you know, some of these things, it's hard to get to kind of gauge the legitimacy of of some of these complaints. I know that that you know, in terms of being taken to jail for their assigned court dates, this is something that. The public defender's office has been has been kind of struggling with uh, getting you know getting their clients in court when they're supposed to be. The sheriff's office says that you know in terms of the, the number of books they haven't been limiting it. So you know, like I said, I think there's probably some um, dispute over over how legitimate these these grievances were. But regardless, one pod of detainees barricaded themselves inside with no security present, um, you know, no sheriff's deputies actually on the pod and took it over. And that lasted for, for two days during which the sheriff's office claims that they were offered food, medication, water, and they denied. The, the, the detainees did have access to water um, on their pod. They shut off the main water, but there's another uh, access point is my understanding. But, you know, this ha- this happened and, and eventually the sheriff's office decided to to end the end the standoff uh, by through a planned use of force with the Department of Corrections and entered the pod. They, they fired several forms of non uh, less lethal weapons, beanbag rounds, uh, flashbangs and, and sting ball grenades um, and, and retook the pod. So that was that's sort of the, the background on, on what happened. How long did the protest last? It started on Friday afternoon or evening, I believe, and then ended Sunday evening around eight o'clock. Nick, can I ask you something? So when the protest began, 
Um, you say there's no there there's no security staff on on the pod. How how did that situation come to be? So I think that from from my understanding, and there was some talk of this at the city council meeting uh, immediately following the protests. Is, is there were a couple security staff when things started escalating and potentially had had the potential for, for violence. My understanding is they went to go get backup, and that's when. I've themselves in. So some of the city council members really kind of pushed the sheriff on this and were like, your officers fled. And she pushed back on that assessment and said, no, they're just going to get more, you know, reinforcements. Another thing I want, I would want a little clarity on that you and I have discussed behind the scenes a bit, but I'm not sure if it's gone into, into our published reporting. This has been frequently described as a quote unquote maximum security pod but that's not exactly correct is your understanding, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so there's some question of, uh, my understanding is that several of the detainees on the pod were in fact medium security. It was a mixed medium and high security pod. Um, I haven't gotten a straight answer from that, from the sheriff's office. This is, you know, uh, things I've heard both from family members and, and other sources on background uh, that that there was a mix of, of uh, security levels on, on the pod. Yeah, and uh, just I'll note that not getting a straight answer from the sheriff's office is going to be a running theme throughout this segment. <laughs> okay. Um, this was a protest, as you, as you outlined in the beginning, this was a protest in response to certain um, deprivations or, or various complaints they had. Were they making demands at all during this time? You know, it's not entirely clear what the negotiating process was during that, you know, you know, they gave the sheriff the list of demands. The sheriff's office said that for several that for the for the first day, really, you know, things were in control. Uh, the There was, you know, no violence on, on the pod and they sort of were were waiting it out. And I think trying to negotiate what those actual conversations were looking like. I'm not sure. The sheriff's office has said there were sort of six ringleaders um, who orchestrated the protest, and it sounds like who were the ones they were negotiating with. Um, but I don't know what those conversations were like um, and to what degree, if there was any progress being made. Um, but ultimately, the sheriff's office just said that it had come to a point where they felt like the detainees in the pod were sort of gearing up for to either come out or confront uh, the jail staff, and, and they were concerned that it was going to get violent, and that's when they made the decision to go in. Okay. And in fact, it did turn violent, according to some of the detainees. They're, they sustained some pretty serious injuries. Immediately after the planned use of forces, which is kind of the, the jail terminology for, for these incidents, when, when you know, they decide they have to use um, force to, to end some, you know, to, to quell a disturbance of some mm-hmm. sort. Immediately after that, the the day after, the sheriff's office said, we don't believe that anyone was injured during this planned use of force. They said there were some injuries and some people were taken to the hospital, but we have reason to believe that these were actually self-inflicted injuries. Um, And they said that, that they believed that some detainees were cutting themselves in order to go to the windows of the jail and show me the media and there's a group of people who had kind of gathered outside of the jail in support. And they said, we believe that, that that's, you know, the extent of the injuries. 
the, were these self-inflicted injuries. Wow. Um, and they said, you know, they said, we haven't, we haven't done a full assessment. We haven't gotten all our, all the information back from the hospital, but that's kind of what we, we think. And once we have more information, we can provide it. Um, so that was the Monday after. And then we didn't really hear anything. Um, and we didn't hear anything from the sheriff's office. And we also didn't hear anything from people who are on the pod inside the jail because they were being held in lockdown with no access to phones. Mm. Um, and for they were days. being held in their cells for 20, you know, 24 hours a day, except for, you know, being let out to shower three days a week. So the press wasn't hearing from them. Their families weren't even hearing from them. Um, there was really, you know, no, no information coming out and the sheriff's office wasn't uh, providing any. When I followed up with the sheriff's office and asked about injuries, they said that, uh, you know, they repeated this, that, that several people have been taken to the hospital, but said they couldn't give any more information due to the privacy rights of the detainees. You know, I'll note that we weren't asking for any identifying information. We were just asking for kind of a description of, of, of what had occurred. So that kind of brings us to, to last week. And on Friday, um, the detainees who had formerly been on the pod were given access to phones. Um, and I was able to talk to to one of them last week and several of them this week. And they, they sort of painted a very different picture of what happened during that raid. And you, it's pretty gory, I think. You, you've got some pretty major allegations of some serious injuries, uh, punctured lungs, broken bones. Yeah. Yeah. So one one man I talked to uh, said he was in the hospital for, for 10, you know, somewhere around 10 days uh, with several broken ribs, two punctured lungs. Um, he said that there was a, a, there was fluid around his heart and he had to have a tube uh, placed, you know, in his chest for much of that time. And so, yeah, I mean, I asked him, I said, do you consider, do you consider that a minor injury? And, and, you know, he was like, no, I almost died. You know, I'm not sure what the, the sheriff's office was attempting to do when, when they said that, that these were only minor injuries. Um, but they clearly, you know, should have the, the medical records of the detainees in, in front of them and, and can see, you know, the reality of the situation. And, you know, this is, a, this is an administration that was elected, you know, not long ago, uh, took office several months ago, and really ran a campaign based on, you know, one of the, one of the key components was that we we're going to be more transparent. These people in our custody are members of the community and, you know, the community community deserves to have kind of uh, a clear understanding of what's going on in the jail and and when things you know when people are injured or when things have gone wrong. So I think you know that was very discouraging to to the family members of of these people who felt like they were getting um, you know at the very least an incomplete story of of what happened and you know, felt like they were being, their concerns were being totally disregarded. Yeah. And let, let me just add a little this uh, to the transparent. I'm glad you brought up her, uh, her promises, both as a candidate and as she was newly inaugurated. Um, yeah. I mean, transparency was, was, was a keystone of this campaign. Her predecessor, uh, Sheriff Marlon Gusman uh, was known for for not being open with the press, not being open with the public, taking a long time with public records requests, not you know often not responding to 
you know, basic, basic media requests for information. And she, she presented herself as a counterpoint. Now we have this situation now where, uh, it, it seems, uh, that we're not getting complete information on what happened with these injuries. And, uh, you know, on top of this, this, this week, um, I, I just want to note that, uh, that WWL, uh, reported, uh, that the sheriff's office, um, after denying it had done this, had brought on the uh, former uh, head of the city's juvenile jail, uh, who who kind of left that post under a cloud of scandal. Uh, they had hired him um, during Sheriff Hudson's first week uh, as a contractor consulting chief of staff, and this is in and this is only coming out now. Uh, you know, two or three months after he left that post. Um, because they didn't tell the truth when every media outlet in town asked them about this. Mm. Um, and they, they, you know, they're, they're also, I, I don't know about WWL and, and how long it took them to get their records that, that made this story happen, but I know on our side that they have been slow walking every public records request we've put in for the past couple months. So this is really surprising given the, the campaign the, the, the campaign and the campaign promises that we heard. Now, that being said, um, I just, I, I want to, I'll get off my soapbox here and uh, get back to the, to the story. You know, I know in your first story, uh, it, was a, it was a gentleman who uh, we had been told had been sent to the hospital because he, uh, he, he was diabetic and he hadn't, he hadn't been taking insulin during this, uh, during this protest. First of all, um, He's telling us that he was never offered insulin by the sheriff's office in spite of what they were saying uh, about offering inmates uh, their medicine. Um, and he also says that he was kicked in the face by an officer. We're not sure if it's D a DOC officer, a sheriff's department officer, although it, 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 there are some indications that it may have been DOC. Um, how, how did these other detainees sustain their injuries? The man who had a collapsed lung and several broken ribs says that he was standing with his arms raised when the guards came in. And he said he was shot point blank uh, with a bean background in the chest. Um, and so that's what what he, uh, that's what did the majority of, of the damage. Um, but he also says that once he was on the ground, he was kicked several times by officers. The other two say they were shot while on the ground. They, they said they believed they were rubber bullets. Um, the sheriff's office has, said, has not mentioned that any rubber bullets were used. I think it's possible that there could be confusion between beanbag rounds and rubber bullets. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't have any confirmation on that. But they were shot. Um, one man says that he fractured his forearm, and another man says that he fractured his upper arm, and that actually he... It, the hospital told him that, that he needed surgery. For uh, some reason, he says that surgery was delayed and that he is actually still awaiting that surgery. He's back in the jail now, um, but he said his arm is in a partial cast and, and sort of a sling and, and that he is still, you know, waiting to be brought back up to the hospital to have the surgery done. And, you know, both of, both of them said the same thing about, about guards sort of continuing to, to punch and kick them, uh, after they had already, you know, been on the ground, after they had already been handcuffed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've requested, there should be video footage of, of everything that happened. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of this could be cleared up with video footage, incident reports, use of force reports, all of which yeah. should exist 
So if there's no problem here, then uh, then we should we should just be able to watch the video and read the reports, right? So those those have to have been made available by now. I mean, I I put in a request for all that information, if not the day after, then then just a couple of days after the incident. One thing I will say is that in terms of transparency and in terms of kind of getting information to the press, the sheriff's office is a, is a big place. They're dealing with a lot coming in. There's some degree of leeway that you can kind of grant to an administration uh, when they first take over a, an office as big as this in terms of getting systems into place to kind of provide information on a timely, in a timely manner and, you know, getting, getting this info, getting accurate information out. The thing with hiring the former juvenile justice intervention center uh, leader, there's no way to really chalk that up to um, the, the fact that they were in a new administration and, and, you know, there's no way to interpret that as 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 a setting up systems problem. I think is what you're trying to say. That's exactly um, what I'm saying. It, it was yeah. it was a lie, um, and that that sets a pretty bad precedent when you lie to several media outlets in your first week in office. And I'll say I haven't seen the medical reports for Randall Craig, who is the 66 year old diabetic detainee. Um, but when I asked the sheriff's office if he suffered any injuries as a result of the planned use of force, they said no. They didn't yeah. say, you know, we... They didn't say we're still looking into it. They exactly. Yeah. And and this should be pretty easy stuff to identify. You know, he says he went to the hospital and, and they put surgical glue on his face where he was kicked by a guard. That should be documented. And it, it should it it should be a pretty easy thing to look into, you know. They also said that they have documentation of him refusing his insulin. They have not provided any of that. I've seen no evidence of that. Um, so, and, and, and I'll note, I mean, when you you've put in public records requests, right? So there's a law, and there there are certain potentially applicable. Exemptions to that law. One includes an ongoing criminal investigation, which could possibly apply here. I mean, they may end up, you know, they may end up having, they may end up charging at least, you know, the 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 alleged ringleaders here. So I could understand if that's what they were telling you. Is that what they're telling you that that your requests fall under this exemption? No. Or have you? So you haven't heard anything about why you're not getting. Uh, there, I believe they responded you know, a day or two after and said, we're working on it. That's basically what I've gotten is that they're working on it. You know, there are certain other records like incident reports, like use of force reports um, and and surveillance footage that isn't protected by, you know, federal privacy law, some of which may be exempt under state, under the state public records law. But we have, we have not heard heard that as a reason for a delay or denial from the sheriff's office. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say also the families have been reaching out to the sheriff's office too, and, and information can kind of be shared that way. So if the sheriff's office really says that Mr. Craig was not injured, they have not said that to, you know, Mr. Craig's daughter who has just heard from, from her dad that, that he was kicked in the face and had, you know, surgical glue. But if they really are denying that that happened, you know, that's not something that the family has heard. And I, I am, you know, kind of curious uh, why that, that, that communication has been so lacking. 
It's a disturbing story, Nick. Uh, thank you for your work on it. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, and I cover education here at The Lens. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. Thank you. Joshua, the St. James Parish Council rejected a bid on Wednesday that would have zoned one of the parish's majority black residential communities for industrial development. The move effectively keeps the South Louisiana Methanol Company on the hook to resolve its stalled $2.2 billion project on the site. So what led to this decision that happened this week? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a long saga. It, it goes back um, about a decade uh, to 2013, when uh, it, w- it was originally announced that there was going to be this methanol plant uh, in St. James Parish. And then there, there, there was another announcement later, a, f- a few years later, kind of re-upping that um, when, you know, the, the, it, it seemed like the, the wheels were turning and the backers, the, the companies behind it, um, you know, kind of um, there, there was kind of a reorganization in, in, in terms of who was financing it, who was going to benefit from it. Uh, there, there's a New Zealand-based uh, company in, in, the, in the current iteration, and, and there's also a uh, Houston subsidiary of a Saudi-based uh, company. So, you know, basically the community living in the fifth district, which is a majority black, majority lower income, uh, surrounded by industrial development as it is uh, really kind of sandwiched, you know, saw this, this company coming in, this, this would be um, yet another contributor to, you know, what, what's been documented as the adverse health and environmental impacts of this real, really dense concentration of industry um, in this part of the uh, part of the world, you know, dubbed by some as Cancer Alley, it's, it's the Chemical Corridor. This particular uh, slice of land um, that South Methanol, uh, sorry, South Louisiana Methanol um, was going to occupy would be directly adjacent to the only public park in the Fifth District. Um, yeah, so you know, a, a lot of community concern. Um, they they raise these concerns over time. And um, the uh, particular zoning designation is is interesting here. It, it was originally uh, designated in uh, 2018. Let me just read this, read this so I get this right. The, yeah. the parish's land use plan for the 5th district was changed from uh, residential slash future industrial to just residential growth with the uh, particular exception for this specific uh, methanol plant. And, and then this uh, rezoning ordinance that um, was, was um, proposed by the council, one of the council members, um, 
Donald Nash would have rezoned it from uh, residential growth back to residential slash future industrial. So basically the background, I realize I'm kind of rambling at this point, but the, the, the background here is that this project from South Louisiana Methanol has, has basically stalled for a number of reasons that we can discuss later. And, and so what they're looking to do at this point likely um, is, is to sell that land. But the question is, who would you sell it to? Right. With the zoning um, in place, it's, it's exactly, yep. exactly. With, with, with the zoning in place, the, you know, you, you could um, open it up to this designation residential slash future industrial. And that would of course, you know, open the doors wide open for South Louisiana methanol to, to sell it, you know, and get a good price to another industrial uh, development. Um, and that's what they that's what, that's what they were hoping for. But the council actually rejected that proposal. So, you know, it's still just residential growth at this point. So they're, you know, that pressure release valve for them, let's say, is is no longer on the table. Right. Okay. So so I assume the community, the resident the residents there are celebrating this decision. Yes, they were. And, and frankly, there was, there was um, some, let's say, pleasant surprise at the result. This, this is a community that's seen, you know, over the decades, just in one industrial development after the other. Um, it, was, it was just a couple weeks ago where the council uh, implemented this uh, moratorium on uh, solar, uh, commercial solar development. Right. Um, you know, and, and some, some of these same residents who were opposed to South Methanol and opposed to industrial development in, in, in their communities were saying that, hey, we, you know, listen, we need a moratorium on, you know, the petrochemical companies. We, we don't need a moratorium on, on green energy development. Right. So there, there was um, some noticeable surprise and uh, some pleasant surprise from the, the citizens and the residents who were opposed to it. Were you at the meeting, Josh? Yeah, I was, I, I was, I was out there. Yep. What was the tenor? What was the atmosphere like when the decision came down? You know, it was um, it was kind of a it's kind of a sigh really of relief for the residents, it's, especially because it, it it didn't even go to a vote. Mm. Um, it was it was a motion, you know, to consider, and there 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 wasn't a council member to second the motion, so it kind of just died on the vine, and and so it was it was you know it was kind of anticlimactic in a way. There mm. there wasn't like this you know, dramatic vote counting um, scenario. It, it was kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I guess that, I guess that's it. And one of the council members actually kind of was narrating essentially what, what just happened. He's like, well, it, it got declined. It just, it's not, it's not happening, you know, after, it was, you know, it's kind of uh, maybe a, a moment's uh, confusion for some people in attendance. Just, out of curiosity, what's the demographic makeup of the council? Yeah, so so there are seven members: Council Member Nash, uh, Council Member Cooper, who represents the fifth district, and uh, Council Member Stibe is, is a is a woman as well. And all three of them are African American. Uh, the other four are um, are white males. If, if if I have that right. Okay. Yeah. I'm just. I was just interested. Sure. Absolutely. You know, just, just, just one other thing there, there was kind of a moment of, of intrigue at, at this meeting and the last meeting a couple weeks ago where, where there were a couple attorneys from earth justice, you know, this environmental 
group that is, um, their tagline is the earth needs a good attorney. They, they're involved in legal matters with, uh, you know, environmental justice. And they uh, apparently have gotten hold of um, these records, these communications. At the last meeting, uh, they, they were saying that they have these emails, if, if I, if I uh, recall correctly, between the uh, parish president, Pete France, and the CEO of uh, South Louisiana Methanol, uh, a man by the name of Paul Moore, that show this, um, let's say, coordination between the two. And um, apparently these uh, communications demonstrate that Paul Moore wanted certain language, um, you know, either added or, or removed from what the council was considering. And, and that change apparently was made at, at his behest, it, it seems. And, and then at last night's meeting, there was more information that these, uh, it was just the one attorney this time uh, speaking uh, to this, showing that the uh, company had met privately with a number of um, council members. But, you know, basically what she's saying is that this raises all kinds of questions about ha has uh, the public meeting meetings law been violated? You know, what kind of access does this company have in um, contrast to, you know, let's say the, 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 the lack of access that many members of the public might have right. and what kind of influence are they having on the decision-making process? So, I put in my own records request for um, the emails between Paul Moore and Pete France, and I reached out to um, the attorneys from Earth Justice who've said that they're going to supply me with the, the records that they have. So um, I'm waiting on that this morning. And if, if I have something for this story, it's, you know, it's obviously going to be in there. Yeah. So I just wanted to. Okay. Thanks, Josh. You got it. Michael, you're back. This week, the city council put a temporary pause on all new short-term rentals as it sets out to rewrite the permitting rules again. The council is also poised to prohibit water shutoffs on disputed unpaid bills. First, short-term rentals, yet again, why did the council put the ban in place and how long will this one last? Yeah, so um, the current short-term rental laws um, were put in place in 2019, um, and that's and kind of been the status quo for a few years uh, until last week um, when there was this kind of bombshell uh, federal court ruling um, that uh, found that part a key part of the city's current short-term rental restrictions is unconstitutional. Um, now, the, the ruling, I'll note, didn't immediately strike down the law, but it opened the door um, for a group um, that's been suing the city over this law to try and get this part of the law struck down. And basically, it, you know, when they rewrote the laws in 2019, I mean, this was um, basically the, the criticism at the time was that the original rules written under Mitch Landrew and, and put into place in 2016 uh, were far too lenient and basically allowing the short-term rental market to run amok, to come take over neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, I think that even among, you know, there are plenty of city council members that are supportive of some short-term rental market, but but I think the way they saw it, it was just, you know, neighborhoods, especially high, um, you know, uh, um, uh, demand neighborhoods like Treme, uh, Marini were just getting really inundated, raising house prices, you know, displacing long-term residents. So, you know, kind of one of the central measures put in place in 2019 um, was that in order to have a short-term rental in a residentially zoned area, 
um, you had to have a homestead exemption for that house, which means that you own it and it's your primary residence. So this does a couple things. I mean, first of all, you can only have one home at homestead exemption. So the idea being that one person can only have one residential home term, short-term rental. And the other part of this being that, you know, a big complaint with short-term rentals is that it, it might be an out-of-state investor that doesn't care if, you know, they're having five bachelor parties a week um, that are disrupting the neighborhood, you know, with unwanted parties um, and stuff like that. So the idea being that if someone lives in the neighborhood, they'll be more invested in, in doing this in kind of a, a, a better way. However, the court, this court ruling last week found that that clause requiring a homestead exemption um, violated the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution um, by uh, uh, basically creating a bias against out-of-state investors. Now, once again, the law wasn't immediately struck down, but the city council has kind of decided, you know, they're going to go ahead and start rewriting the laws anyway. Um, there had been some existing criticisms over the law about how enforceable it was, um, whether it was doing enough to prevent, you know, neighborhoods from being overrun with short-term rentals. Um, so basically, the city council, in the wake of this ruling, and in particular, Councilman J.P. Morell, decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and rewrite these rules. Um, however, you know, if this law gets struck down, they don't want to take the chance that between now and the time they rewrite the rules, there's just, you know, uh, this this land rush to, to set up as many short-term rentals as possible um, before the new rules are in place. So basically, um, what they're doing now is setting a moratorium to give themselves some, some breathing room, pretty much, um, to give them some time to rewrite the rules and, and, you know, not get into some mess where, you know, there's a lot of unwanted short-term rentals in the meantime. Right. Cities all over the country are grappling with this. High tourist areas are certainly grappling with this. And I guess it's it's one of these things where they just keep making up the rules to, to respond to the changing environment. I mean, I'll note that what's interesting about this case is that one of the main selling points of the current rules, when they introduced them in 2019, you know, they weren't as restrictive as, as some opponents to STRs wanted. But, you know, a big selling point was this was incredibly well researched. They, you know, this has been done in other cities. It's been tried in federal court, and we're very confident that the law won't be struck down. Now, surprise, you know, uh, three years later, it has been struck down in mm. federal court. And I think that an interesting, you know, thing here is that, you know, a lot of the cities that have done this, um, you know, live in in you know under federal appeals courts that are much, you know, kind of more liberal. Um, than the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which um, is the court that, you know, uh, came out with this ruling. And so, you know, I think that, again, you know, one of the selling points of this law being it's going to be upheld in court and now it's struck down in court um, kind of sets in the reality of, you know, Louisiana does kind of live in a different reality when it comes to, hmm. you know, the federal court process um, because of the justices that are appointed here. And yeah, I mean, so I'm sure a big focus of this next round of rulemaking will be to try and find something that can't be challenged and overturned in court, but you just, you never know. Um, you know, I think that in, in the ruling, the Fifth Circuit um, actually suggested something that some residents had fought for in, in back in 2018, 2019, which is a neighborhood cap. Um, so saying that, you know, each neighborhood can only have, you know, can't be more than 5% short-term rentals or, or something along those lines. Um, you know, I, again, we're at the very beginning of this debate, um, but yep. something against the cap rule would be that, you know, I, I think the argument on the other side is that if you have a cap, 
um, you know, then there's going to be competition for those homes. Um, and if there's competition, then, you know, better resourced people are going to end up with those permits right. and, you know, residents that maybe don't have an attorney working on this or, or you know, what have you kind of might be left out. So there's going to be a long debate about this, um, but, you know, that's all ahead of us. Okay. Moving on to the second story that you've got this week, it looks like the city council will for the first time pass laws around the sewerage and water boards billing practices. What's happening with this? Yeah, so this is kind of a first for the city council. Um, traditionally, um, the city council has not really had the ability to, to regulate the sewerage and water board, um, but a law passed um, earlier this year um, that became effective actually uh, on August 1st gives the city council the ability to pass laws around the sewage and water board's billing practices. There had been a fight between uh, Councilman J.P. Morell and, and uh, Mayor Can Latoya Cantrell. Councilman Morell had been pushing a bill in the legislature that would have given the city council full regulatory control of the sewage and water board, similar to the, the control they have over Entergy right now. Um, you know, then Cantrell came out and was, you know, kind of firmly opposed to that. Um, they both did some lobbying at the state level, and the law ended out in kind of a, a middle position where the council um, was granted the ability to pass laws regarding the sewage and water board's billing practices, but was not given that kind of overall regulatory power to say, you know, you need to invest in this pump and you need to hire, you know, this, but, you know, like the, that kind of Micro, more operational yeah, control. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, this is kind of the first time we're seeing that law being uh, utilized and it, it has to do with the sewage and water boards billing practices. Anyone that follows local news in New Orleans knows that this has been an ongoing issue for years. Um, there have been a lot of stories over the years of people getting just outrageously inaccurate bills, you know, time at tens of thousands of dollars, you know, just clearly inaccurate bills. Um, and, you know, there have been issues um, reported by residents uh, about either having their service shut off as they're disputing one of these bills or having their bills sent to a outside collections agency. Um, you know, this summer, I think there was a lot of attention on, on people claiming that these unpaid bills, even though they were in dispute, being sent to collections agencies because, you know, if a collections agency is hounding you for debt, that can end up on your credit report. Um, and for a business that can affect, you know, your ability to get a business loan for a resident that can affect, um, you know, your ability to buy a house or uh, get a car. I mean, you know, I've had to rent apartments where the landlord, you know, I'm just renting and they require a credit check. Right. So it can affect a lot of stuff. Um, now, I'll note that the Sewerage and Water Board has said that this is not their practice um, to, to send um, disputed bills um, to an outside collection agency. Um, at the same time, we have residents claiming that it, it's happening. Um, so I, it's a little bit unclear, but whether or not it, it is going on, if this ordinance passes, that will you know, be against the law. The Sewerage and Water Board will not be able to either shut off service uh, or send a bill to a collections agency if there if someone is dis disputing that bill and there's like a long sewage and water board you know dispute process that you can go through so um you know again sewage and water board saying this is already their policy but if this is passed it'll be enshrined in local law and it looks like it has broad support almost unanimous support yeah i did there's um six out of seven council members are co-sponsoring it I, the seventh joji russo it's yeah I, I talked to his office apparently 
they, they didn't send their email saying they wanted to co-sponsor it in time. So they're not officially co-sponsoring it as now, but it basically seven out of seven council members are supporting this. So almost certainly will will pass. But the Cantrell administration is also calling it a win? So that that more has to do with the law that that's that gave the council this power. I, I think that when you go back, you know, when the bill was originally introduced, again, it, it gave the council broad authority to, to really regulate any part of the sewage and water board. Um, Cantrell, um, you know, again, argued that this would just add red tape, um, that it was kind of a, a attack on the leadership at Sewers and Water Board. Um, so, she, you know, she, through lobbying at the state level, was able to, you know, get that authority really, you know, uh, um, cut back. Um, so, you know, again, we ended in a middle ground. I think Councilman Morell said it was a win for him. Mayor Cantrell said it was a win for her. Um, and again, we ended up somewhere in the middle and yeah, that's where we are. But yeah, we're, we're finally seeing that law kind of go into action now. Okay. Thanks, Michael. It's nice to have you back. Thanks, Carolyn. It's good to be back. All right, you guys have a good week. All right. Well, bye guys. Thanks. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news, plus opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>